CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Who is Victor? Some of you may be first-time listeners. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is a classicist, a military historian, farmer, best-selling author. His most recent bestseller is The Dying Citizen. And he houses his content and his brilliance and appearances at victorhanson.com. We'll talk about that a little later. Many of you listeners who sent in questions, and we have a few today to discuss, and we'll start off with some about to elicit Victor's views on democracy as a thing. What are its upsides? What are its downsides? And we'll get to those questions and more right after these important messages. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, my friend. I hope you're well today. So let's get to the questions, though. Victor, I, mean, I have two questions. One's got a little prologue to it and the other is a little more simple but they both are about the nature of democracy and the more simple one is from daniel heil and he says uh he asks up front does democracy align with human nature it seems that everybody wants something for nothing conservatives don't want to pay for their tax cuts everybody wants entitlements social security medicare costs are skyrocketing etc so it's, does democracy align with human nature. And let me get the other question related sort of is from Alan who, and here's his little preamble. Victor is a fan of open consensual democratic um, societies. He used to talk about this a lot before, but not so much now that may be because the U S is clearly no longer open and is not so consensual and democratic, or it may be because he, conclusively proved the value of those societies in his book, The Second World Wars, where the ostensibly soft free societies trying to follow a moral code somehow beat the ruthless, tyrannical societies in which all actions, including torture, were allowed and in which decisions could be made by fiat without endless debate. But some writers question this narrative. Professor Hoppe, for example, I'm not sure who that is, Victor, but I'm sure you know, in uh, Democracy, the God that failed shows that a monarchy is in many ways better. Or going back further in time, Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom also lists ways in which a democracy cannibalizes itself to destroy the very things it was meant to protect. So here's the question, Victor. My question is just to ask Victor to revisit the question. We've heard that he thinks, so we heard what he thinks 
are the strong points of the open democratic model. But it would be interesting to hear what he thinks are the weak points. So, Victor, the weak points of democracy, does democracy align with human nature? What are your... What well, are there, your there's, a whole, there's a whole um, discussion of this. So in Herodotus' history, there's a discussion uh, when the Persian king asked various wise men, which is the best form of government? Oligarchy, democracy, monarchy, of course, you know what they say, monarchy. And then... And then there's a, a long discussion in Aristotle's politics about four types of oligarchy and four types of democracy. His point is that they, they have gradations based on the size of the property qualification. There's Plato's laws and Republic that discuss it. And then in the modern context, everybody from Machiavelli to uh, Tocqueville, I should say the post-classical era. And the, the consensus is this, that the problem everybody want a liberal society in the sense that liber in latin you can be free and that is best is best achieved by a constitutional or what they call a consensual system the consent of the governed but the problem is if there is not going back to montesquieu or tocqueville and this was in the ancient world and this is the great criticism of athens if there's not checks and balances on the everyday whims of 51% of the people, then they become what the Greeks called an oklos, a mob, not a demos. And so our founders knew that. And so they switched gears. So we don't have a Greek uh, philological concept of democracy as the ancients knew it in the, the Athenian form. They used a, a Roman word, res publica, the public thing. And they looked at the Roman system where there was representative government rather than direct democracy. And so I guess the answer to that is the people elect officials. And when they get in fits of hysteria and they elect bad officials, or they 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 do they go into excess and try to go beyond the officials, referendum, etc., then there are ways to slow that down, not to 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 nullify the will of the people, but in our system, we have the, a, the, a Congress of popularly elected representatives that represent the people and senators who are popularly, not originally, but now popularly elected that represent the states. And that tends to slow down things. And then we have vetoes. You can override vetoes and impeachments, etc. And the whole purpose is to tell the people you are in control but you're not on any given day going to execute Socrates, or you're not going to go in on any given day and wipe out the Melians or the Middleenians, or say you're on Monday, you're going to wipe them out, and Tuesday only some of them. So that's that, and that is because if you read classical warnings from Aristotle, Cicero, people are human, and human nature is unchanging, and they have this hysteria, this fit when they they're mob like. I guess it's genetic or instinctual. You feel safety when more people want something. So the Russian collusion hoax, everybody bought into that. You know, it was the McCarthy period. I have in my hand the name of 209 people, uh, or now it's Loyalio. So they, they get into these fits. And so you have to check, channel that to make sure that it's a genuinely safe thing to do. And we do that with a variety of checks and balances. And the other thing that they warned about was, eventually democracy imploded because it's a human tendency to vote for things for you that other people pay for so in athens you can see a, a gradual degradation from the early fifth century down to the mid fourth century and by that i mean people are starting to pay in the fifth century to go to the theater I want to go watch Sophocles. You take off work. Here's some money. And then later in the fourth century, well, I have to vote. I have to walk into Athens. Well, here's some money. Or I have a bad leg. And I claim that it was, you know, a war. Here's some money. And, and so finally, these systems become broke or they either become broke or the population becomes listless. That's the classical view. And they often couch it in terms of the human body aging so it's a robust young teenager and they would say in 1820 and then it's a conflicted adult after the civil war then we hit our heyday 
the end of the 19th century to the mid 20th century and then we're starting to be old in the 60s and 70s and now we're joe biden like you know and there's a di I, I said that um on mark levin's show i think it was on august 14th i said we're no longer a republic anymore i think i said we're in a transition to a radical democracy and i got attacked for that I, there was a guy i don't know who he is robert smith and he said something to the effect that uh victor hansen said that it's finished that's a good philological reminder you don't if you're going to attack somebody you should read what they wrote rather than what you think they wrote I didn't say it was we're finished I said we're in a transition and what do I mean by a transition to a radical democracy we're trying to overturn the filibuster trying to get rid of the electoral college trying to make a national voting law trying to pack the court trying to bring in more states to get senators for a particular party we have empowered the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, the DOJ to have judge, jury, executioner powers. We're trying to destroy Election Day where only 30% of the people now vote through early voting and mail-in voting for one reason, under the cloak of COVID, because there's less mechanisms to stop voter fraud. And to the left, voter fraud means voter restriction. And so they feel that anybody under any circumstances should be able to vote, including people who are not citizens. So we're in that classical trajectory. I don't know exactly where we are, but we're transitioning to a radical democracy. And after that, you get a correction. And unfortunately, if you look at the original people who threw out the czar, the white Russians or the Kerenskyites or the Mensheviks, and you look at that transition to Bolsheviks, to Stalin, or you look at uh, the Girondist and the people that threw out the Bourbons and then they transitioned into the Montagnards and then to the Jacobins, the Committee of Public Safety. And then we get what? Napoleon, Thermidors, and then Napoleon. And the same thing with Weimar. So we're getting into this chaos and there's going to be a correction. And I hope that that correction is constitutional and moderate rather than some crazy a uh, person that says this is unsustainable yeah the correct correction if there is such a thing doesn't happen unless there's a, a proper leadership i'm a real leader i think strong leader and i'm by strong leader i'm not meaning mussolini or or hitler but uh just in the as you mentioned you know the soviet union there weren't a lot of people who involved in team uh, lenin team stalin who who overthrew the government they they faced a bunch of of weaklings but if there had been strong leadership it's just not it, going to yeah you're going to have to have a person that comments so the other day when this stupid you know we've talked about that this 300 billion dollar giveaway right before the election of joe biden's to students to shore up his base because remember students had said they had no confidence in joe biden 70 percent and he needs them to vote for his candidate so he gives them 300 billion dollars in debt relief doesn't care about the people who didn't go to college that are going to pay part of it. Doesn't care about the people who were scrimped and paid. We talked about that, paid them off or never took them out. But when you think about it, uh, what were the comments? One of the first comments was a, uh, I guess she was CNN and said, this is racist because African-American women owe more than the average person it takes therefore and see that's the logic that you need a leader to say well then don't take them out or maybe african-american women took out graduate more graduate loans and undergraduate or maybe uh other people decided they had different avenues and they didn't trust the federal government or the university so they tried to get two jobs but that blanket exegesis like that designed to to raise tensions and based on this uh, diver diversity, equity, inclusion mantra, you need somebody to say, no, this is not going to be racially based. We're left-wing people. We believe in people not paying their debts, but we're not going to now further compound that folly by having mm -hmm. racial categories. So, or the, the same thing with uh, open borders. We're not going to do it. You can't have a nation. Look at what's happened to Sweden. Sweden is in turmoil. Look what's happened to Germany. It's in turmoil. We can't go there. But you need somebody to say that. Ron DeSantis is not trying to do that. And you can see that he is because the left now is almost 
getting to the point where they hate him as much as Trump. But you need to do that constantly and say, we're not going down there. Call me anyway. I wish that DeSantis would say things like, call me any name you want. It makes no difference to me. Right. Because after they, I mean, there's no currency left in racist. What does that mean? It, it means nothing. It's one and size fits all. Except the, the reverse racism. I mean, if Martin Luther King came back and he walked into Stanford University, he would say, wow, you've got a segregated safe space. Right. You've got a segregated dorm. You call it a theme house. You've got a segregated graduation. What the hell did you, or did you do? Yeah. And they'd say, well, you know, this is better. And he'd say, well, this was not the content of our character. It's, it's the color of our skin. They said, yep, that's who we think you were, Martin. Yeah. He'd be an Oreo by uh, by the oh. standards of the leftist radicals. But there's uh, a limit to this. I think everybody should realize there's a limit where it hits the wall of the unsustainable. And this race thing is right now at the point where if you tell students you can't come to this dorm, as they did in Berkeley, you can't go come in the front door or you can't study in this safe place because based on your skin or I'm going to go a guy's dating a girl and the girl says, oh, I'm going to go to my graduation and you're going to go to yours because we have different skin colors. That's not sustainable. And if you see people, we talked about that with this violence that's inordinately, at least according to demographics, committed by about 6% of the population, African-American males, and no one, no one is willing to say anything about it, the causes or the corrections of it, then that's not sustainable. And the downtowns are not sustainable. Right. And a lot of these um, spending 30 trillion, 31 trillion dollars is not sustainable. So there's going to be corrections and they're not going to be in our hands. Right. Because the civilization doesn't work. It starts to, to peel off in a road. It already is, is that. It's already happening. And you can see it already with the Hispanic world. And they they felt that their futures were intermarriage, integration, assimilation, uh, upward mobility through the middle class trajectory. At least half of them did. The other half relied on government and noblesse oblige from the wealthy white by coastal elite. But the dynamic Hispanic uh, voter is already done with it. He doesn't want to identify. Right. Uh, essentially as someone who's brown he thinks that's incidental not essential to his character that's already starting and that's right. why you should expect a lot of demonization of mexican right. leaders by wealthy white people well victor <clears throat> you uh, mentioned philology uh before and we have a question related to that and we'll get to that right after these important messages Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I'd like to make a quick pitch for two things. One is that, uh, especially if you're a new subscriber and you haven't heard these pitches before, uh, please consider, please visit victorhanson.com. And then I, I really want to encourage you to, to uh, subscribe because I think I, every week there's about, if you have to put it in words, 10,000 maybe, words of original writing that Victor does for that website. You can't read it anywhere else. It's under ultra. Let's call it, you know, it's behind a paywall if you want to use the terminology. But, you know, the paywall is pretty low. It's $5 uh, to test it out, $50 for, for a year. It's a 
copious amount of original material, never mind everything else that's on the website. So victorhanson.com, go there, uh, test drive it, put in five bucks, and you will regret not having done it sooner. As for me, the loquacious mumblemouth host of the show, Jack Fowler, I write a weekly free email newsletter. It's called Civil Thoughts. You can sign up for it at civilthoughts.com. And it's about, you know, it recommends 12 or so uh, really worthwhile pieces that have been written in the previous week, thought journals, etc. cetera, uh, that um, I, I suggest you may want to check out. No strings attached, no cost. Uh, your name's not going to be sold to anyone. So that's, that, that's civilthoughts.com, and it's a production of the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, where I, I hang my sweaty hat. So, Victor, Chuck, Chuck, uh, listener Chuck sends this, a little prelogue, prologue, whatever. I am simultaneously fascinated and perturbed by the left's attempt to control perception of provocative issues by altering language. Orwellian newspeak is not new, but it seems to be used progressively more frequently in today's contentious political climate. Current examples might include referring to those who support abortion as pro-choice, referring to January 6th as an insurrection, or the recent debate about whether we are, we're currently in a recession, not to mention the relatively new demands related to personal pro pronouns, but that's somewhat of a special case. Most recently, We've been told that what the FBI did at in Mar-a-Lago was not a raid and shouldn't be referred to as such. The right doesn't seem to be as effective in using language to influence malleable opinion, although I was encouraged by the recent use of the word groomer to describe those who would indoctrinate young children with respect to sexual issues. Dr. Hansen, given your background in philology, can you talk about the impact of word choice on quote, moving the Overton window, end quote. Does whether or not we call it a recession really impact how people perceive the economic environment? Can you share examples from history where linguistic sleight of hand was used successfully? That's from Chuck. Victor? Well, a good example is this new one, huh? minor attracted people <laughs> map. <laughs> That's for pedophile. Pedophile is an exact word. It's from Great Pydia. Pideon and philia philel, and it means you love children. And that's what a pedophile does. He tries to have sexual congress with a child underage. But that's what discriminatory, especially to the gay community, apparently, because they seem to be behind this minor attracted people, meaning we like young, attractive, pre-sexual boys and girls, I suppose. And uh so what does that mean? That means that's going to butt up against legislation, and then legislation is going to be considered, what, discriminatory? Who are you to say that I can't have sex with a 12-year-old? So so that's how it starts, is what I'm getting at when you change the language. Um, this gas prices, that was called what? A transition? A transition? That was uh, a transition to a better future of batteries, I suppose. And then we had transitory for inflation, just transitory. This is what we just talked about, it, Jack. Segregate, segregation is called safe spaces, theme houses, separate graduations. So, yes, the, the caller is right that the right is way, way behind the use of language. And Orwell explained that pretty well in Animal Farm and a couple of essays on the English language. And also in 1984 about how totalitarian systems on the left do that. And it's always to Dis disguise their fascism by being for the people. You can do anything for the people, just like Nancy Pelosi is for the children. All you have to say, we're doing this for the children. Then you can make up anything you want. The Locus Classicus is book three in Thucydides' history when he has a digression on the stasis or revolution at Corsaira, modern-day Corfu, and he said words had to change their meaning. And what he was basically saying is extremism takes over and the person who is moderate is a sellout. And the person who is bloodthirsty and extremist is committed. And he says that this is a natural part of the loss of common traditions, protocols, moderation. And it's it's in our society, we've seen it in the Soviet Union, 
And usually what they do is they say people who are enemies of the people are crazy. So they diagnose them with medical problems and they incarcerate them. And um, they do that increasingly in China now. I suppose they'll start doing that here too soon. But yeah, the left, left is always historically, from the very beginning, the master of words uh, changing their meaning. And when you say pro-choice, I mean, pro-life just means you don't want to abort a fetus. Pro-choice means you, you have the choice to abort a fetus. And uh, notice the word fetus. You, I mean, that itself is a politically conditioned word. It's a baby because we know that science now has been able to suggest that very uh, young fetuses or conceived children are viable from the very beginning, whether they're in a test tube or very quickly out into another, um, they could be an egg can be fertilized and then they can be put in another womb. But the point I'm making is the left will never use the word baby never 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 it's always fetus fetus is something inanimate for them right. and that's very important and a fetus for them is somebody who who leaves the birth canal and is aborted in the birth canal that is a fetus and they know that and i don't understand why the republicans when they're letting they're seeding this issue in the midterms about Oh, you're, they just keep creating these 10-year-olds need abortion. There, there's always a backstory to all of these, and they denied them, except in our federal system, there's no law that a person couldn't leave a red state to a blue state. That's what happens. But nevertheless, they try to scare people, but the right. Republicans don't have to scare anybody. They just say, this is a party that it's not the majority of abortions. It's not even a great minority, but there are occasions, 10, 12, 15, 20,000 of these cis with a murder. You just take a viable fetus, had that fetus been outside the womb, it would be perfectly able to live on its own, and you kill it. And then we call that a fetus and an abortion when it's not. You know, and not that I'm not going to get into what at what point it isn't murder, because that's a right. whole different discussion. But I'm saying that most people, left and right, can agree right. that when a fetus is in the womb in the birth canal, then you abort that. That is... That's murder. Yeah. And they uh, left and the right is not talking about that. Do you know who did talk about that, Victor? Not to bring this down to an abortion discussion, but uh, on the, the the debate after the infamous Hollywood, uh, I can't even remember the term, but Trump first, the, the final debate with with Hillary Clinton, where he went after her on abortion and partial birth abortion. I kind of think that played a role in saving the day for him and winning him the the election no I, it's hard he, to remember a republican candidate ever talking so forcefully and and baldly about what this act was and it i think it shocked a lot of people uh into voting for him and well it, it's just a, i'm not talking as a moralist i'm not giving right. my own views i'm just saying as an outside political observer right. anytime the discussion hinges on underage girls that are raped are incest and they're forced to have a child of that monster and the discussion is not on that person in the womb as a living soul right and the genes don't make them evil but nevertheless when that's the issue the republicans lose and anytime the issue is they are killing babies that are viable Right. And I don't know where that viability is, but for a majority of Americans, it apparently means that if there was an induced birth, the baby would be alive. And that has gone from nine to eight to seven to six to five, and I think even to four months. Right. And well, so that's the discussion. That's what we're really, that's the subtext of the whole discussion. Right. And the left is much more effective in saying we are the party that's protecting a 10-year-old from her from her sick uh, grandfather who impregnated her, then the Republicans right. are effective in saying, and you're also the party that destroys or crushes the skull of a little baby as it leaves the birth canal. Yeah. And they're both, I know, I understand their characters, I understand all that, but that's the issue. And why? Because in every single one of these issues, but especially abortion, and you look at the, the the right is outraised. It's just outfunded. And when you start looking at these particular races, J.D. Vance, 
Blake Masters, uh, Dr. Oz, and you ask why they are being outspent four to one, three to one. It's not just because they had contentious primaries, but because uh, the left wing money is pouring in on abortion. Right. Huge amounts. And people have to realize that, that the party of the very wealthy, the party of dark money, the party of ruthless expenditures to sabotage campaign is not a bunch of old white guys on the golf course on the 18th green plotting uh, to, you know, warp an election. It's a Mark Zuckerberg. It's a Mike Bloomberg. It's right. a Bill Gates. That's who's doing it. And they have more reason. And George Soros, they have more resources than the right. Yeah. I think a lot yeah. of people on the right and conservatives still think that because they're champions of free market capitalism, that they have people who are the most successful at it. And maybe the middle class is the most successful at it, but it's terms of mega wealth. The Democratic Party is is the wealthy party. They are. That's um, one reason I can't get I can't tolerate them. They're just very, very wealthy, spoiled people that, that right. run that party. Right. By factors, but it's just exponentially more so than than you know, available money on on the right. It's a type um, of money too. It's the type of money. The great fortunes in America on the left, not always, but they come more from different types of activity than on the right. The right, there's still a lot of money in the right that is from farming, transportation, construction, real estate, uh, assembly, etc. Right. Oil, gas, mining, timber. The, the money on the left is law media tech you know what i mean it's right in finance investment it's a different type of money that's divorced from the earthly earthly pursuits and it right. tends to be much more uh, in much greater magnitude and in much greater neglect of how people have to live right and people in general there's a malthusian strain that runs through <laughs> leftist philanthropy it's uh you look at Gates and particularly Warren Buffett, who's still many on the right, you know, genuflect too, because oh, he's the you know the sage of of Omaha. But uh, his estate, he's an older man; he's over ninety, I think. When he kicks the bucket, you know, he's, he's dumping about a hundred billion dollars into funding what abortion is crazy. Anyway, Victor, let's. Uh, we've got another question or two. We're going to try to get to in the limited time we we have on this particular uh, podcast. And uh, let's talk about uh, governance. You mentioned moderation before, and this is an interesting you know, observation and, and question from uh, Karen. Uh, she writes, when I was younger, I started listening to Rush Limbaugh, who I greatly admired. And one day it occurred to me, for the most part, Rush objected to every single item the Democrats put forward, every single one. And I had to ask myself, can the Democrats be wrong 100% of the time? With the possible exception of my husband, no one is wrong 100% of the time. I wish I had a rim shot <laughs> sound effect here. Couldn't there perhaps be just a modicum of a good idea in there somewhere? My question has to do with the inability of the legislature to reach a compromise. To me, it's essential and not a sign of weakness. Our legislature functions like two teams playing tug of war, and the winning team gets to make the rules. Hey, it's good to be king but maybe not so good for the country. So anyway, Victor, what do you, what do you, uh, it's just, I think it's what are we getting back to an original conversation about the maturity of democracy and the aging process. So if you and I were having this conversation in 1945, 55, maybe even, I don't know, 60, we would say, if a guy's out there on a roof and he falls off, you got to have workman's comp disability. And if you're going to, if you're an employer and you know you're a cement contractor and you have a guy that gets there at eight and he he's on his knees till five and de- and then you call him up on Saturday and Sunday and said I need you to work, then you might want to have a forty-hour work week with something called overtime. Or if he gets there at six in the morning, I mean he's got a life to live. Maybe eight hours is enough. So these were the issues. Social Security was another one. And the Democratic Party of old was a working class party. And they said there's enough wealth in this country that we can protect working people, muscular people. And they achieved that agenda. They really did. It was got to give them credit. They did. And we if you look at the deficits as a percentage of GDP, they were not even after World War II, they declined. 
And I think you reached sort of a golden era right with JFK. And then after that, with the Great Society, the, the whole the whole scenario changed. It's not any longer we're going to give people quality of opportunity and we're going to give the working people uh, the same types of conditions and landscapes that wealthy people have. Then it was suddenly, wow, there's still poor people and we're going to eliminate poverty by equality of results. We're going to take from these people and increase tax and give to these people. And we've gone beyond what we can do. We've done all the workers' comp and the eight-hour week, the day and the 40-hour week and health, all that. So now we've got to do affirmative action and we've got to give cell phones to people and we've got to do this and we've got to do this. And what you do is you innervate the population. And at that point, the Democratic Party ceased to exist. And now it's a progressive Jacobin revolutionary party. Right. And its its sole goal is to say, our mission is to stamp out all inequality as we perceive it. And we do not care what causes it because we only accept one reason, and that is racism, sexism, genderism, whatever. But it has to be culpability. It can't be inheritance. It can't be work ethic, it can't be chance, it can't be health, it can't be thousands of extraneous that make me different from you. Can't. It has to be somebody's an oppressor and somebody's oppressed, and we're the adjudicators, the Democratic Party. Right. And when you get down that road, there's always the exemption. And we're the, there were the executors and we're the adjudicators, but we need the exemptions because we're morally superior. Mm-hmm. So I'm John Kerry, and this is what we're going to do for climate change. But I got a jet over on my Gulf Stream. Right. Or I'm Barack Obama, and when climate change is coming, and we're going to zone all of these. Co- but I need Martha's Vineyard in my Hawaii estate. And I'm Gavin Newsom, and we're going to do this and this and this about healthcare, and we're going to do this. But I got to go to the French Laundry. Or I'm Paul Pelosi, and I have to get a big gas guzzling Porsche and drank why I'm driving and danger people's health and then show a little car that I give the highway patrolman to get a reduced sentence. But my wife is for egalitarianism and equal treatment of everybody. And that's how it works. It right. always has. Yeah, you know, Victor, the, the, the Democrat of 1960 looking across the aisle at the Republican 1960, I don't think would say, I hate that guy. I want to control him. I, I want to See him in prison. You could argue, you know, Hubert Humphrey was kind of a loudmouth and he had some crazy ideas, but he didn't hate people. He he was kind of like Jerry Ford, or he was kind of like old Bob Michael, the speaker of the minority, perennial minority leader, nice guy. They they were, you can argue that, you know, there wasn't really, the country was drifting to the left before Reagan, yes, but. It wasn't like it is now. It wasn't society work. I can remember you'd go to any small town. I would used to visit my teens. And I understand that there was a few wealthy guys, the city attorney, the guy with 500 acres, the car dealer. I understand that there was inequality and all that stuff. But it was there was no crime. There Mm -hmm. was no there was uh, race was becoming incidental. There was upward mobility. There was good jobs. There was, if one person wanted to stay home and raise the children, they could. Right. And a lot of that was Republican uh, efforts to keep the free enterprise private property system intact after the assault on it during the New Deal. And a lot of it was the Democratic Party was not into Marxist ideology. They had rid themselves of commies and they were trying to think of agendas for the working class. And that is completely over now. Right. Well, Victor, we have one more question, and that has to do with Winston Churchill, the question. And I'm going to ask this right after these important messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, the final question of, and we thank all of our listeners who sent in questions. Alan asks this, Victor has expressed his admiration for Winston Churchill in the past. I assume that's true, Victor. How does he see the quote-unquote special relationship continuing with the present and future administrations following the treatment of allies in the Afghanistan withdrawal and post-Brexit issues? Victor, your thoughts on the special relationship between America and England? Well, the special relationship exists in half of America and maybe 45% of England. By that, I mean, I'm not just saying white people, but people of an older generation that understood the creation and role of NATO. They understood that Britain in World War II, for example, was the only nation to declare war in the first day and the only nation to fight to the last day of all the major belligerents. And they understood that partnership won World War II, and that partnership gravitated toward the United States that, over, that took up the British role in the post-war order and gave us the modern so-called rules-based orders. They understood that relationship. But there was in Britain, they had open immigration, and they have a lot more problems of integrating, assimilating, and uh, intermarrying than we do. And they had this great disconnect that they were alleged to be the nexus of racism that spread their neo-colonial, imperialistic, oppressive system all over the world. But with the collapse of that system in the late 40s and 50s and early 60s, it turned out that, you know, Britain, get out of Nigeria, Britain, get out of India, Britain, get out of Pakistan, Britain, get out of Jamaica, Britain, get out of Ghana and take me with you. And they had open door immigration, and they've got a large number of people who have not been assimilated into the traditions of the British nation. And then there had been a big effort in Britain and, you know, Scotland especially, to and Ireland to redefine United Kingdom as European. And there was this same group that said, wait a minute, we're British and we're unique, whether it's we never joined the continental system in World War I and World War II. We fought against it. We fought against Napoleon. We're different. And that is now also, I think, a minority of the population, or at least half, maybe less. And over here in the United States, the same is true. There's people that are conservative and traditional, and they pretty much feel that when you're in a jam, you can trust the British people. We always have. We've always come to their aid. They've always supported us. They've been wonderful in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then there's the other people who say, you know what? They're run by a bunch of old white guys. They're racist, sexist. You know, we'll just skedaddle from Afghanistan. Screw them. That type of person. And it's it's hard. So the, the special relationship exists from half the nations on either side of the Atlantic. And whether it is inert or whether it is active depends on whether the Labor Party and is in power or the Democratic power. If they're both in power, then they, there's kind of an ideological similarity, but it's not based on the old system. It's based on, hey, you can be a partner. The Labor Party and the Democratic Party can be a partner to a new vision of European globalism. So that's not. But when you have the Conservative Party in Britain and the Republican Party, then yes, that relationship still endures. And oh, I, Churchill embodied it. He was half American. So, right, right. And he, he, he understood that. And he understood both the power of the United States and, and the dangers of the United States. And he was the one that explained that we could not win World War II without the United States but a fully engaged, fully mobilized United States within British 
uh, dominance in the world. And it did. It's kind of like uh, Tolkien's ring. I'm not saying that we were evil, but you had to use the United States in his view. But when you use the United States, you were going to cede complete leadership to it by 1943, 44. And he did. Right. And he understood that. And then his views that he wanted to sustain maybe a commonwealth that would gradually give independence rather than radically just break off was completely out of date as far as America and Roosevelt were concerned. Roosevelt, in many ways, insulted Churchill and tried to triangulate by being friendlier to Joe. I think at one point he said, just let me handle Uncle Joe. He likes me a lot better than you, Winston. Right. Right. So said the president to the greatest mass murderer before Mao Zedong. Right. 20, 20 million, and, and he got a lecture from FDR about the beauties of the Soviet Union, I guess. Yeah, and uh, and w- was assisted in many of his foreign policy yes. decisions by Alger Alger Hiss. By the way, Victor, uh, one one two thoughts quickly. Uh, going home every day from from work in New York City when I lived in the Bronx or, or high school, I was on the Jerome Avenue line, and Jerome Avenue is named after. Winston Churchill's uh, grandfather, uh, who was from originally from Brooklyn, but they named it one of the major streets in the Bronx after him. So that that's a little a tidbit. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that struck me as hurting this relationship in recent years was when Barack Obama went over to England and and lobbied against Brexit and told the British people, uh, you know, if you guys past Brexit, you, you, England, are going to the back of the line when it comes to America's trade relations. I think he actually won Brexit. Obama's obnoxiousness, remember he was also, his obnoxiousness, he gave the queen, what did he give her, like an eye? To, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of those uh, Apple devices filled with his speeches, but um, as a gift. And, we, and he, I think he removed, didn't he remove Churchill's bust? Uh, from, yes, he from did. The, yeah. He, the, so, the, uh, Charles Kronheimer had gotten that controversy. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And then he lied about it. And he he uh, he blasted people who said he did as liars and character. But he did. He did, yeah. So I think he really played a role in, uh, in uh, uh, harming this further. Um, I think everybody and, should understand that about Barack Obama, just as an aside very quickly. Yeah. When you, he was the one that took a inert, harmless word diversity and he empowered it and redefined it as non-white and his purpose was to say it's not a black white country of 88 12 it's 35 65 anybody who is not white has a claim against the majority and i'm the avatar of those grievances that's what his whole point was and he did a lot of bad things yeah the, the apology tour and he unleashed the real michelle against us never been proud of this country until Barack, downright right. mean country, raised the bar on me. Just the, the, the politically calculated whines of an upper middle class, right. privileged and entitled person who had gained the system from her education to her employment in Chicago. And all she had to do was utter one word of gratitude. Yeah, I was a middle class person in a multiracial society in Chicago. I got affirmative action going to the Ivy League my thesis was unreadable, but it was approved basically about how white people hurt black people at Princeton. And it was just a whole ended up at some job making like three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. I mean, you got to give I, David Axelrod credit at that campaign. They had unleashed her in the primaries and in the general. And she was going to lose him that election. Yeah. And he got a hold of her and he said, listen. You're not going to go out and freelance anymore. You're going to stand by Barack's side and you're going to say what a wonderful country this is and how you want to help everybody's life. And you're not going to talk about race. And then when he did that and she corrected, then she was no longer the issue. And then when she got in there, he said to her, and now you're going to be therapeutic, Miss, uh, you're going to be America's kind of working mom oh my uh, gosh vogue uh, you know right type of person and you'll they'll love you and you'll write little homilies and stuff like that and don't go back there and every once in a while she'd say well you know i was at a store and some white woman asked me to reach up and get a package you know that kind of stuff or my i worry every day that my children could be gone out and murdered meaning white supremacists or you know like in J- jesse smollett fashion or driving around the obama estate 
in uh, Calorama waiting to attack the Obama children when we right. know who would attack the Obama children if statistics are any indication. So. Oh, yeah. Well, let's. Well, that said, my friend, uh, and everything else you said today, and I want to thank our listeners, Victor. I know you feel passionately about them. Uh, also, this this podcast uh, has been growing significantly, remains often in the top 10 uh, news podcasts in America, and that's because folks are coming and listening and staying, and, uh, uh, and I'd stay too, and uh, because of the wisdom Victor shares four times a week and now five, on occasional five when he actually interviews somebody, which I think has become a regular weekly feature of this. But that said, I do want to read one comment that we got from um, Apple Podcasts, just talking before about FDR kissing up to Uncle Joe Stalin. And this one's titled Whitaker Chambers and Witness. And this is from Bill Stewart in Jefferson, Texas. He writes, my wife and I never miss a podcast. I don't know how you have the time to do all you do and tend to practical matters on the farm. I'm reading Whitaker Chambers Witness for the second time being reminded of the seminal work by seeing that this is the 70th anniversary of its publication. I would love for VDH to discuss Chambers and the forces he was up against in his determined effort to alert America to the insidious threat of communism. Thank you, Bill Stewart. And I think, Victor, that would be uh, a welcome topic for a, a podcast. He was a wonderful pro stylist and essayist. Oh People forget that, how he was a ma- probably one of the best masters of English language in the modern conservative movement and then yeah because he was sort of an ungainly person he took a lot of uh left-wing elite hits uh, right. that were aimed at his sexuality implied and his girl you know what i mean his yeah, slovenly fat rotten slovenly tooth, fat yeah, yeah, yeah rotten sweaty. teeth yeah. and it was all juxtaposed to the aristocratic blue blood handsome dignified opponents in the state department like alger his yeah well, I, I recommend, uh, I, I've sent witness out to probably 30, 40 people. I, I think it's one of the great, great books of our, our time. And it's also, if, you can, if you're a Whitaker Chambers fan, you can find it on some used bookstore, Ghosts on the Roof. That's a collection uh, done. Uh, a ter- the late Terry Teachout put that together a few years ago. And, it, and Victor is right. He is just one of the most beautiful writers. There's a couple of pieces in that book from the masses, the communist magazine paper that he used to write for the, the fiction works and and chambers is just uh, stunning uh with the english language but we'll do that on a future podcast bill thanks for presenting you know offering this idea thanks everyone uh who listens and who rates the show on apple we're close to a, f- a perfect five-star rating really appreciate it victor thanks my friend all right well thanks so much and we'll be back soon with another episode of the victor davis hansen show thank you everybody